Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. If someone has inflammation that's leading to AFib, you can burn out the AFib, but what about the inflammation? And what's the next thing to happen to someone from a health standpoint when they still are inflamed? Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Right, so I have Dr. Jack Wolfson, who's a board-certified cardiologist. He uses nutrition, lifestyle, and supplements to prevent and treat heart disease. He has a long bio of a lot of things. He's been chairman of medicine, director of cardiology, director of cardiac rehab, and selected by his peers as one of Arizona's top docs in 2011. In 2012, he founded Natural Heart Doctor to offer his patients the ultimate and holistic heart care. And people worldwide consult with Dr. Wolfson traveling to Arizona. And we were just talking about his move to Colorado. So we can talk about that. He's been recognized as one of the top 50 holistic medical practitioners, the paleocardiologist, the natural way to heart Heart Health is his first book and is an Amazon bestseller, which when did that come out? That was 2015. Cool. Well, welcome to Less Stress Life. And I'm excited to talk about all things cardiology and heart health today. Thanks for joining me and driving well, down from the mountains to have phone service. Yeah, no, it's fantastic you know, to be on. Loving to share the uh, heart health and wellness information. You know, my 2015 book, everything I said in there, you know, rings true. But there's a lot more things, of course, you know, I've learned over the last seven, eight years since the book was published. But uh, it's been a great way for people to get the truth about heart health. People are stuck with their conventional cardiologists, pills, procedures, not getting real answers. So that book provides that. And of course, our website does. And hopefully my new book will be released in uh, sometime in 2023. Cool. Well, let's jump into you recently moved to Colorado. But before all of that, you really took a a bigger move, which was out of working in hospitals, working for yourself and, and doing things 
completely against the grind or against the grain. And I always like to hear about the catalyst. Like what was the last straw for you? Why the change? Because it's not necessarily an easy transition. Some people have different transition stories, but we're kind of in a time. I keep asking providers that I interview about this that have done this earlier. We're in a time where people are just in general kind of annoyed, right? They don't feel like they could be making as big of an impact, et cetera. So what was kind of the last straw for you or the thing that caused you to transition and how did you transition? Well, you know, once I you know met my wife, who's a doctor of chiropractic, DC, or as she says, doctor of cause, and I learned the truth. She pulled me out of the medical matrix, really told me about what causes all disease. And as I was learning that, I was trying to make changes inside of the conventional cardiology group that I was with. But ultimately, you know, money would prevail. And the hospitals, the group itself, they're so predicated on procedures, quick office visits, they're not looking at getting at the cause. So ultimately, I would keep getting in trouble. I would keep, you know, again, telling people a different way to uh, eat and live and think. And hospital administration, everybody, again, was getting kind of frustrated with me. So I saw the writing on the wall, so it was time to get out. Again, I tried to make changes inside the system, but the system will not allow it. So I said, you know what, I got to go on my own and give it a shot. That was 10 years ago, and it's been a whirlwind, and it's been one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me besides my wife and my four children, and brings me to talking to people like you. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the things that come to mind first when people think of heart health, which are their labs. To kind of set the stage for this, I saw a stat the other day in some resources from the American Nutrition Association talking about insulin resistance and that 70% of people with atherosclerosis have insulin resistance, but only 50% of people have hyperlipidemia uncontrolled at the time of their heart attack. So that points us a lot to blood sugar issues. So we can talk about that. But before we do, before we kind of get into that, I want to talk or wrap that into what really matters in our blood chemistry, right? Because that's where people like start. And that seems like where it ends, you know, until something gets really severe, or people have really significant symptoms. So let's kind of like unwrap the cover there. Do we really give a shit about total cholesterol? I'm just going to be real honest. Uh, I guess in short... Yeah, in short, we don't. And that was chapter one of my book, you know, cholesterol is king. And again, how important cholesterol is. And then again, as you assess it, as far as the lab value, total cholesterol is not very important at all. In fact, I could care less what it is. And we know that really from the 1970s, the Mr. Fit trial really put the dagger in the early career of cholesterol as a marker. But nonetheless, that's still what most people focus on. Most cardiologists focus on that. That's really, you know, and oftentimes all they focus on. But to your point, it is not a relevant value. When it comes to lipids, what you really want to know is you want a ratio, the ApoB, ApoA ratio. We need to know that. We need to know our LP little a, which is a nasty type of LDL particle that's highly correlated with cardiovascular disease. And then you can know triglycerides and triglycerides go back into your point of that insulin resistance, dyslipidemia syndrome. They all kind of go in together, what's called metabolic syndrome. And there's a whole kind of thing that surrounds that again. And, but those markers are one thing. I think what are even more important are the markers of inflammation and oxidative stress. If you have inflammation and you have oxidative stress, you're in trouble. You need to know those ox LDL, lipid peroxides, myeloperoxidase. And then, you know, again, the markers of inflammation, HSCRP, phospholipase A2. Those are the real things we want to know. Is your body on fire? And if it is, we need to figure out why. 
And ultimately, like you said, let's look at fasting insulin. Let's look at fasting glucose. Let's look at hemoglobin A1C. Those are very important markers as well. We can look at uric acid and then we can go intracellular. We can look at intracellular vitamins and minerals. What is your level of copper, your zinc, your selenium, your CoQ10, your glutathione, your omega-3s? What are your levels of all the fat-soluble vitamins and the water-soluble vitamins. We can determine all those. So again, the standard medical doctor is just doing the basic 1970s tests. And when you work with a holistic practitioner who really wants to take a deep dive on all these things, then you're really going to get some solutions. And we do leaky gut testing. We do mold mycotoxin testing. We do environmental toxin testing, toxic metals. You can do gut analysis. And truly, I think for someone who really wants to know their status, their health status, that's the information we need. And then, you know, people like you and I, Krista, we put them on a plan and then we retest three, four months down the road and we make sure that they're on track for what I would say is their 100 year heart. What another person would say, the 100 year you know, body, the 100 year lifestyle. That's where we're yeah. at. Yeah. Want to feel younger as you get older. So I heard you talk about something I almost never hear people talk about very commonly. I mean, in my profession, we do talk a lot about comprehensive testing of vitamins and minerals, but you just brought it up and I'd love to hear about it from your perspective. How often are you looking on that at that? Because there's a lot of options for testing and you don't always have to test every single detail for every single person, right? So how often are you looking at vitamins, nutrients, et cetera? Are you just kind of going and supporting mitochondria because it's such a big thing for heart health? How do you approach that depending on the person? Well, I think, I mean, again, it depends on maybe someone's financial capability for any of these tests. So in that sense, you know, the first things we're going to do, right, is eat well, live well, think well. You're going to spend the money on eat well, live well, think well. And then ideally after that, you test, don't guess. So the testing, of course, could be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, or it could be very minimal, you know, depending on what tests you run. To your point, if what we want to really focus on is that one area and say, okay, well, how do we support the mitochondria? Again, what are the best tests to look at the nutrients that support the mitochondria? And that just goes back to the B vitamins. Well, if you don't have vitamins, you know, B1, B2, B3, you're not going to have functional mitochondria. If you don't have, again, B5, I mean, they're, they're all important for the mitochondria. If you don't have copper, the mitochondria is not going to function. Copper is critical for electron transport chain units uh, one, two, and four. If you don't have omega-3s, if you don't have CoQ10. So again, that's where really that analysis comes in to really dial in how we can support mitochondrial function. And then ultimately, if we have a lot of reactive oxygen species, if we have a lot of oxidative stress by measurements, then yeah, we want to support that mitochondrial function. Not only that, but we also want to support superoxide dismutase. The We often reach, you know, Krista, for these antioxidants. And are you taking enough C and E and uh, you know, resveratrol or other herbal, you know, compounds that are known to have antioxidant potential. And even some of the most, you know, in some of the newer things, again, you get people talking about methylene blue and some of the heavy oxygen electron donors of what it is. But the best antioxidant system is really the superoxide dismutase. And the more that, and that's just inherently made in our body. And that's really where the best balance comes in. And supporting that is the best way to go. Some of these external antioxidant systems 
they are not overly beneficial according to the literature. And again, it may be if we support our own antioxidant defense mechanisms, that's the strategy. So I like to think about common denominators when I think about a certain condition. So I want to talk about some different heart conditions, and then I want to then jump to different self-infections. And before I do that, you were just talking about all the nutrients supporting mitochondria and B vitamins. For example, if your gut's not working, as you were saying, you're not going to digest and absorb B vitamins either. So there's like... And you brought this up in different words earlier, but there's a lot of opportunities to look at things. And this is kind of how I feel. It's like once you know things, you can't unsee them anymore. So you kind of just want to fix everything once you're in there. It's in, it's just how it is sometimes. So it's nice to hear you say, and I hear this from people who specialize in all different things. So often we're kind of trying to take care of everything, you know, as much as possible. I mean, people talk about gut health all the time, right? But it's not that we're actually doing as much as we could be sometimes with it. As much as as popular as it's gotten, we haven't made treatment or improvement of gut health as mainstream as it probably could be yet. All right. So I want to talk about self-infections and these common denominators of other things. Let me start with self-infections because it probably relates a little bit to your last points. Before we hit the record button, we were talking a little bit about your personal story with you with mold in Arizona. And then we got to talking about mold and cardiovascular disease. So let's talk about all stealth, sneaky, annoying things that can be driving inflammation, these inflammatory markers, and thereby causing issues with the heart. And maybe first, to make it tangible, tell us what this can sometimes look like on the outside that might alert someone to say, hey, doc, I think I've got a heart problem. And then you look and you say, "Um, I think this is actually a different stealth infection, if you will go into that. Well, I think, you know, the reality is, and literature supports this, pretty much any kind of complaint or ailment can be linked to cardiovascular disease. Not in so much that if someone says, I've got a rash, is that my heart? Well, you'd probably say, you know, of course, you know, no. But you would say, well, if I've got a rash, that means I've got inflammation. Something is leading to that rash. And if therefore, if I've got that inflammation, well, of course, now my heart is at risk because inflammation and oxidative stress are linked to all cardiovascular conditions, atrial fibrillation, cardiomyopathy, heart attack, stroke, abnormal lipids, blood pressure, whatever label us medical doctors want to put on things. Again, it can be, it's, it's all linked to inflammation, oxidative stress. So as we look at all of that and we say, okay, well, what's going to be causing that inflammation, oxidative stress? That's where it takes us maybe into these stealth infections that you mentioned. But even the stealth infections kind of thing, whether you're talking about Epstein-Barr or other viruses, or you're talking about parasites, you know, and maybe Lyme, you know, disease, you know, from the Lyme uh, spirochete and other co-infections. I think that the reality is is that a lot of those quote-unquote chronic infections, they are because your immune system is damaged and you are not able to clear out things that we should be clearing very easily. And again, one of the biggest immunosuppressives is mold in your environment from water damage. The mold mycotoxins are immunosuppressives and make your immune system dysfunctional. So now you can't clear Borrelia equals to Lyme or, or Babesia or Bartonella, and you can't clear Epstein-Barr and other viral infections. So if we look at the concept of mold and mold in your water damage building, mold mycotoxicity, it really provides that kind of overall construct for this really can be linked to all disease 
And it's very interesting. And again, that's why I think some people, most people, they don't get success when you try and quote unquote treat Epstein Barr or you try and treat Lyme. Again, there is a, you know, an issue there. Now, other like, you know, other things that could be a chronic irritant, of course, if you have dental issues, if you've got infected teeth, if you've got periodontal disease, if you've got root canals that are chronically infected, which they all are by definition, well, that of course would also provide the foundation of chronic infection leading to immunodysfunction. And I'll say also, if you are in mold, it leads to the difficulty and inability to clear dental infections as well. So I think those are two really important points for people to look at. Again, what is your oral health status as really foundational? And then, of course, what is your you know, mold mycotoxicity status? Yeah, I think about oral health all the time. I always think that what's going on in your mouth is probably a window to what's going on in the inside of your body. So I'm glad to hear you. You also feel. And again, like this is not just like pie in the sky, you know, thinking like mm -hmm. this in the in the medical literature. There are dozens and dozens of studies that talk about periodontal disease and cardiovascular risk. We know that when you look at, you know, you do cultures uh, and coronary plaque, you will be able to grow out a lot of bacteria that come from the mouth. And if we look at the issues regarding, you know, gut health, how much of that comes from the mouth, how much does gut health actually lead to, to oral disease? There's a lot of that theory out there as well, kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it the dental issues that led to the gut issues? Was it the gut issues that led to the dental issues? I think clearly the answer is probably somewhere in the middle and the fact that it relates to both. Mm -hmm. Speaking of viruses, you brought up viruses. Cardiology has gotten a lot more of a spotlight in recent months as we've seen young people with myocarditis and, and other heart issues or kind of heart-like symptoms or cardiology-type symptoms, kind of with COVID and COVID vaccination and all of those things. Can you explain the mechanism of what's happening there? Well, the alleged purpose of a vaccine or the COVID mRNA shot is to stimulate the immune system to produce a response against the said, you know, uh, pathogen that we are injecting. And we're trying to stimulate that immune system, whether it's to the chickenpox virus, the measles virus, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, or COVID. So, so there is a, a purpose allegedly for that. And once you stimulate the immune system, well, now again, you've got the immune system, now it's kicked in. And it was kicked in uh, artificially, and therefore the response is anybody's guess. It's not natural, so therefore the response is truly unknown. So could that response, of course, it always leads to inflammation, it always leads to oxidative stress, and when going haywire on that, now you can develop cardiovascular problems. So you can develop immune system attack on heart muscle cells, for example, in the case of myocarditis. You can also cause mini thrombotic events or macro thrombotic events leading to massive stroke or heart attack, but they could also be small events leading to obstruction of the tiny vessels inside of the heart, leading to a, maybe a more subtle myocarditis. And the worst uh, part about it, or one of the worst things about it, is that the medical community, they can recognize that there is the risk of myocarditis. They are totally underestimating the amount of myocarditis that's generated. And then, of course, they're underestimating the long-term impact. They're saying, well, 
these myocarditis cases, they mostly heal. Well, how can you tell me that a 15-year-old myocarditis case is healed? How do we know what's going to happen to that person 10 years down the road, 20, 30, 50 years down the road? And does it increase their risk of heart attack, stroke, atrial fibrillation, cardiomyopathy, we have no clue. So, you know, the reality is it's always been the principle of first do no harm. And uh, again, I think we're harming a lot of people. The message should always be give the body what it needs, take away what it doesn't. Health will never be at a, you know in a prescription and health will never be at the tip of a needle. You just brought up, oh, healing carditis in a 15-year-old. How do we assess for carditis? So that way you can know if it has resolved. Yeah, you know, so again, the, the probably the best way to or the official way to diagnose it would be by a blood test. So again, the child or person may have symptoms, and that could be chest pain, it could be heart rhythm issues, it could be, you know, shortness of breath, it could be a lot of different things that they're having. But typically, we do a blood test. So we look for something like a troponin or CPK, looking for evidence, uh, blood evidence of myocarditis, there are some subtle changes that can be seen on an ECG, not so much on an echocardiogram. Oftentimes, again, it's a clinical diagnosis diagnosis, or like I said, uh, from the blood work. But again, you know, this is rarely, rarely done inside the study protocols. They did it. But, you know, studies are only as good as the people and the companies who control them. Mm -hmm. You know, you brought up thrombosis, which I always think is like a sneaky, scary. It's kind of like in my brain, probably because of experiences and people I've known and, and deaths I've seen. It always feels like the sneakiest way to go because it feels real quick. Is there screening and prevention for this? Is this where D-dimer fits in? Is that even recommended? Yeah, D-dimer is a pretty cool test. It is kind of nonspecific, so it can be elevated in the cases of just inflammation in and of itself. And the problem is kind of like what to do about a D-dimer. So if someone, for example, got a shot or had COVID or whatever it may be. So to check a D-dimer, you know, what do we necessarily do with that in information? I don't think we really know. So for example, if we saw someone with very high D-dimer and yet they don't have any overt symptoms, should we put them on some kind of pharmaceutical anticoagulant? Or should we rush to do additional natural strategies like onatokinase, serapeptase, lumbrokinase, some systemic enzymes? Should we try and rush that person and tell them, hey, listen, you better get super serious about your diet right now. Eat plenty of wild seafood. Eat plenty of nose to tail animal products. Get rid of carbs, sugar, and, uh, you know, and again, and the grains or make sure you get sunshine. Or should we put that person in some kind of a, a red light therapy or, you know, vitamin D lamp? all these different things that we would do for those people. But I guess those are certain things that I would consider. Krista, if somebody called me up and they're like, oh my God, I did this and now my D-dimer is this. What do you think uh, I should do? So I think all those options are on the table. Personally, I've never prophylactically recommended any kind of pharmaceutical for those people. And I think there are protocols, of course, that include aspirin and other pharmacologic therapies it's just not something that I think is is really necessary. And I think the risks outweigh any benefits for those pharmaceuticals. Yeah. The tricky part about cardiology is that it seems like a lot of the conditions that we're most familiar with 
tend to be emergency style situations sometimes, right? Like, I guess there's the chronic rising, been brewing for a long time. And then some of this stuff just kind of comes out of nowhere. It always makes people worried when they have feelings around their heart, heart flutters and all those things, which brings me, feel free to interrupt me if you have something to say there, but that brings me to asking you a little bit about AFib. I feel like I see this quite a bit with people and you brought it up. You mentioned it in passing before, but will you define AFib technically for us? And then share what are some of the things that you're seeing in practice that are causing that? Because I have some opinions or thoughts around this as well, but you're much more the expert. And I'd love to hear about your common denominators with AFib. Well, atrial fibrillation is the most common heart rhythm abnormality in the world. It's the number one reason why people come to see me in person in Arizona or consult with me over the phone. And I think the you know issues with it really are that people are scared, right? They're scared of atrial fibrillation. They don't like the way they feel, you know, racing heart feelings, palpitations, flip-flops. They certainly, when they see their medical doctor, they don't want to necessarily go on pharmaceuticals. They don't want to have a stroke because again, atrial fibrillation is linked to stroke risk. But I think we really get, we need to have people understand kind of what atrial fibrillation is and what's causing it. Maybe they don't want to have an ablation. All these different things are areas that we help people and to guide them through it. But ultimately, AFib is highly linked to inflammation. So as we get older, inflammation is more likely and therefore atrial fibrillation is more likely. So if we find out the cause of the inflammation, which are going to be violations of eat well, live well, think well, if we find the sources of the inflammation, we will be able to help people get rid of atrial fibrillation. And ultimately, if people need pharmaceuticals or if people need an ablation procedure from the AFib, then if we make them the healthiest version possible of themselves, they are most likely to get success from pharma or ablations. But it definitely is something that is affecting millions and millions of people. And these people are struggling But just whisking them away to a procedure or a pharmaceutical is not solving the problem. Whatever is leading to that will lead to something else. If someone has inflammation that's leading to AFib, you can burn out the AFib, but what about the inflammation? And what's the next thing to happen to someone from a health standpoint when they still are inflamed? And I think the other question for me and for listeners is, how do you assess and determine if it's really AFib or if it's really not technically AFib, but a flutter or could it be mineral deficiencies? Those are questions I have. When when the adrenals are on the struggle bus and when minerals are really low from stress, uh, I think that it's this is really a question for you. It seems that some of these symptoms can, something like this can be possible. So what is the cutoff of this is actually AFib. How do you assess that? And then this is really not AFib, but my heart's fluttering. Well, the best test to do that, I think, is uh, what we sell is called the ZIO patch, Z-I-O patch. And it's a two-week patch, sits right on top of your heart and watches every single heartbeat for two weeks. So when you have symptoms, the device records it. It'll tell us, is it atrial fibrillation? Is it atrial flutter? Is it AV nodal reentrant tachycardia? Is it AV reentrant tachycardia? Is it... Uh, you know, sinus tachycardia, is it PACs, PVCs? Is it nothing? I mean, really, is it more of an anxiety thing that's happening to people? So that's the best test is to do that two-week monitor. Now, if someone's having symptoms in your office and you could detect that on an EKG, there's also kind of this, uh, you know, cardia and there's Apple watches. But again, those are really not 
state-of-the-art technology as it really relates to getting the official diagnosis, we're best off doing a ZO patch. And that'll tell us what the rhythm is. Now, it doesn't tell us, again, what the cause is. And back to your you know, point, could vitamin and mineral nutrient deficiencies lead to atrial fibrillation all day long? People with low magnesium, low potassium, low omega-3s, low vitamin D, they have a much higher risk of AFib. So ultimately, whenever I see someone for AFib, we test, don't guess. We do the most advanced lab testing in the world and then be able to help her and say, okay, well, these are the strategies that we can use going forward to help improve your condition. It makes me really happy when we consume and a lot of food-based potassium like coconut water, and we see blood pressure and AFib and other things improve. Potassium, since it's dumped from high cortisol, is just something I see all the time. And I love that it can be that simple. <laughs> so thanks for confirming the possibility, not that it's necessarily that simple. And I, I bring up potassium specifically because we talk more, I think like magnesium is a little more mainstream. So people sometimes take that, trial that, different things around magnesium, but often we're not consuming a ton of food-based potassium. And so sodium, potassium kind of get out of balance. And that's just personally what I've what I've seen with that. And I have a question about the Zeo patch. Is that something you is that something you developed or made or or whatnot? Or is it something that's on the market? Yeah, no, that's something on the market. Uh, you know, other practitioners do have it. We happen to have it on our website. The technology side of all these devices is certainly beyond me as far as the manufacturing of it. But, you know, the interpretation of the data is something that is absolutely uh, spectacular and very, very, you know, very beneficial. Are there any other cool things that you like to send home for people to do assessments to improve their health? I mean, that's like an assessment tool that's kind of fun using that technology. Is there anything else you like to use in your practice that, helps change the game for people a little bit like that you send home. Well, I definitely, you know, I, yeah, I definitely like home mold mycotoxin testing. That's for sure. I like the home ERMI test for people to look at, to assess their home, other kind of bio, you know, hacking or biofeedback, you know, type devices, even something like uh, a nitric oxide test strip, you know, a simple test strip that's put on your mouth to see what your nitric oxide levels are. And that could be, of course, you know, valuable and given good information there. And then, you know, there are heart rate variability monitors and certainly the lower your heart rate variability, the higher your risk, the aura ring, uh, and things like that to help to judge your level of sleep. I'm not a huge fan of wearable technology. I think if you want to use it once in a while, it can have value, but I'm very anti-EMF, so it doesn't make sense for somebody to sleep with wearable technology on a daily basis. I think that the risk of that far outweighs any benefit as far as the information you're going to gain. Mm -hmm. I actually just interviewed a guy, a researcher on nitric oxide. And so he has some things in supplement and some things going into pharmaceutical in the next 24 months, which we talked about pros and cons of that. But I'm hopeful that that something our body naturally makes can be a useful thing for the future of cardiology and blood pressure as well with outside effects. So thanks for bringing that up. I mean, again, like, you know, like, uh, you know, nat you know, natural nitric oxide boosters, you know, uh, beetroot powder, you know, leafy greens, amino acids, L-arginine, L-citrulline, L-taurine are notorious nitric oxide boosters. Sunshine, of course, is a nitric oxide booster. I believe chiropractic care is a nitric oxide booster. So a lot of different things we could do there. I did also want to say, listen, I share your love and passion for coconut water and my kids mm -hmm. totally, you know, uh, dig on it. Uh, that's a that's a phenomenal treat. Avocado, I, I often say the uh, avocado is loaded with magnesium, mm -hmm. as you know, and other you know beneficial nutrients. Bananas are really not a good source of potassium, as I'm sure you tell your listeners as well. But, you know, sweet 
sweet potato is another option. But hey, listen, don't forget, you know, we as humans need potassium. And therefore, all mammals and animals need potassium. So when you eat other animals, you're getting the potassium from that particular animal, and that's going to have benefit for our health. Mm. Is there anything you want to say about for the people that say we should consume less meat for cardiovascular health on that note? You know, I mean, listen, I don't make the rules. It's mother nature. And for the last three and a half million years, I've been hunter gatherers. That's in the paleontology literature, the anthropology literature. It's not in the medical literature, but those are the researchers, the PhDs who came up with it. And then, of course, you can look at TV shows like Alone, Naked and Afraid. Love those shows. I'm sure you do as well. You know, Krista, it's great for the family to watch. And again, you put a vegan in that environment and they quickly turn or they leave the show. So again, there's no bags of oatmeal or walnuts in the wild. When you're in the wild, you quickly become a hunter or you're going to die. So that being said, again, the most nutrient dense food in the world is animal liver. There's nothing else even close. So why would we try and limit the consumption of the animal products? People who eat the most amount of seafood, lowest risk of everything. People, again, who consume liver, you're getting all those nutrients. If you have an unhealthy heart, why would you not eat animal heart? And of course, we're only talking about free range, grass fed, grass finished, pasture raised, the healthiest animals in the world. I'm never talking about anything aside from that. So again, I like eating uh, plants. I like eating vegetables, but don't confuse the two. That's It's just the, the health value and ramifications of eating the animal products are beyond, you know, compare. There's nothing in the plant kingdom that compares to those foods. Totally. So you brought up HRV, which I forgot was something that can be very accessible to people. It may not always be accurate. Will you give a touch more lip service to HRV? Because I think it's a little bit of a buzzword right now. People don't always know what it means all the time. Yeah, so HRV stands for heart rate variability. And what they're measuring is the beat-to-beat variation in time between one beat from another. And when you look at a child, for example, they'll have phenomenal, if they're healthy, heart rate variability. And as we get older, we lose that. So essentially, if our heart beats 60 times a minute, it could beat every single second, totally perfectly spaced out you know, one second, two seconds, three seconds. Now, heart rate variability would mean in between the first and the second beat, maybe it's a little less than a second. The next time around, a little more than a second. And again, that variable nature of that. And the more that variability we have, which can be measured, and I agree with you, a lot of the tech that's out there, unfortunately, does not give us a good approximation as to how we're doing. So I think time will tell. We'll learn more about it. Now, it's interesting, of course, if you do have atrial fibrillation, by definition, that's high heart rate variability. So you can't check things. We're only talking about people who are in normal sinus rhythm. But, uh, you know, I think like anything, right, it's, it's just one of the other strategies. But ultimately, to your point, the technology still has to be a little bit refined. Yeah, I know. People always recommend Aura Ring, and I'm always looking for other options for it. I was recently looking for this because I was testing some other tools, and I wanted to see if there was impact on heart rate variability. I think one of my final questions is really like how to healthy people kind of like assess and take care of our heart health, but before we get there. But I think of HRV, like that's an option for people that's a little bit accessible, even though the tech, like you said, isn't there. But 
Okay. Before we go to those last couple of questions, I have another one that came up with some client stuff this week. So I see a lot of Aether, but this week I had a client asking me about, she has a pacemaker and I was going to have her use a vagus nerve stimulation device. And I've actually had this come up multiple times for different clients and, and different things happening. So there's different types of vagus nerve stimulation devices. But is there really a serious contraindication to doing vagus nerve stimulation or using a device that stimulates it if you have a pacemaker or other heart condition? You know, I mean, again, right, we'll qualify this and say, ask your doctor, of course, but I don't see any issue with it whatsoever. So a vagal nerve, you know, uh, stimulating device, again, if you use something that's, you know, right there on the vagus on either the left side, you know, on the right side, that is not going to be near the pacemaker generator, which typically is under the clavicle over here on the left side, most commonly is where it's placed. So again, if you're going to do a right side stimulation, you're not going to be near that. Now, there are wires that dive down through the subclavian vein into the right side of the Heart. So you probably wouldn't want to put any kind of device directly on top of where those wires may be or where the leads are, although they are deeper down. It's not likely to cause any problem or damage to the device. And certainly if you're concerned, you could actually use the device while you are getting your pacemaker checked at your doctor's office. So you could do that as well. And really, I don't think vagal stimulators, I think are a problem for anybody with cardiovascular disease. I think they're the solution. You know, again, that's what we're doing it for is to get people out of this dominant sympathetic tone and to induce uh, a parasympathetic tone. And vagal stimulation is proven in many studies to actually decrease the incidence of atrial fibrillation, decrease blood pressure, lower heart rate and increased heart rate variability. So these are all really good things. And I think that that's wonderful techniques. I think also any kind of technique that stimulates the vagus, again, whether it's, you know, gargling, singing, humming, you know, bearing down for bowel movements, cold water, you know, plunges. I mean, there's so many different things that people can do. You know, breath work, you know, for example, helps to stimulate the, the uh, parasympathetic nervous system. So lots of different options there. And I think they're all healthy ones. Yeah, I appreciate that because you not only gave us a solution if someone is pretty concerned about that, which we're always concerned about any kind of significant heart thing, typically, right? Um, you gave them a solution, they can go check using it while they're having their pacemaker checked and or considering where the placement of that is. If it's not really near that place, if it's a little dial in the ear or potentially even something on the wrist that's transmitting a signal, then it's potentially less risky than something that would be you know, right in that space, possibly, but always checking with your provider. So, okay. So thinking about healthy people and things that we can do to take care of our heart health, there's a couple sections of this because for me, athletes sometimes come up and athletes to me are, they're a population that has a lot of induced inflammation sometimes. So I don't know if we want to qualify this a little bit, or if you have any thoughts around athletes and heart health where it's a little bit different. But I think for the average healthy person, what people are always looking for at the end of a podcast is what are these top things that we can do to take care of our heart health and assess for our heart health? If our like lipid, our standard lipid, lipid test is not that the primary thing to look at. Well, you know, again, for athletes, I think the main problem I see with athletes over the years, including myself, is the way that they eat and the way that they live, you know, for example. And a lot of times athletes think that because they're athletes and they're athletic, they can avoid doing the other things. So, for example, they can eat whatever they want or they're doing a marathon or a century ride. 
And, uh, you know, they run a few miles and they have a power bar and then they run a few miles and they have a Gatorade and they run a few, you know, or the night before they're carb loading with some nasty uh, pasta meal. Mm -hmm. And so again, these, you know, these athletes, they just do not eat healthy. And that's the, really the problem. They have to provide the body with the right nutrients to get the job done. And those kind of foods, those kind of lifestyle behaviors are not going to support that. So you're gener as you perform athletics, you really start to produce a lot of free radicals, that oxidative stress on the body. And if you don't have the systems in place, again, to be able to combat that, you're going to develop atrial fibrillation, heart attacks, and so many other conditions that athletes suffer from. So ultimately, as an athlete, like anybody else, you want to get tested. You want to be able to test for uh, oxidative stress. You want to know your homocysteine levels. You want to know intracellular vitamins and minerals. You want to know your levels of mold mycotoxicity, environmental toxicity. The more athletic you are, probably the more you want to make sure that all these numbers are in place. Because if you're very athletic and you're generating a lot of free radicals and they're not balanced by the body, you're in big, big, big trouble. Mm. Well, on a note of what are things people can do to take care of themselves, I think you have a something coming up. It's called, is it your path to 100 year heart summit? Will you tell us about that? Yeah. Where people can find you online. Yes. Yeah. So again, you know, you can find us online at uh, Natural Heart Doctor. We do have something coming up called the 100 year heart summit. And, I, and myself and my associate practitioner, who's a naturopathic medical doctor. We've interviewed about 35 different health experts about cardiovascular conditions. And of course, whenever you treat cardiovascular conditions, you treat everything else from uh, brain disorders, autoimmune conditions, fatigue, cancers, you know, you name it. So there's a lot of different things that we can help with uh, in that arena. But again, yeah, it's called the Your Path to 100 Year Heart Summit, totally free. And uh, yeah, would love for any of your listeners and followers to check it out. All right, cool. And that's in February. We'll link it below. Thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Wolfson. Anything else you want to leave us with? No, I mean, again, uh, listen, I, I think ultimately heart health is yours and there's a time and a place for, for pharmaceuticals. And, you know, again, God bless the men and women who are there in emergency rooms and trauma centers doing what they do. But when it comes to prevention, the medical doctors have nothing. And Krista, you and I have everything. So people should pay attention to what we have to say, which is only common sense, mother nature type of uh, strategies, which unfortunately they do not teach the medical doctors. You learn a lot through experience and trials and just all kinds of things. So thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing and check out the... Your path to the 100-year heart. All right, perfect. Thanks so much for coming on today. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.